Welcome to the Envision Together, Going to Our Next Level of Best podcast. I'm your host, Pamela Mishana. Join me on this bi-weekly journey of empowerment, where you'll hear hands-on advice from lifestyle experts, educators, authors, spiritual leaders, and many more who will share tips on how to triumph personally, professionally, and spiritually. We explore timely topics such as overcoming anxiety and fear, educating the reluctant student, cultivating lasting relationships, and strengthening our faith. My hope is that the insights offered on the show will help us envision ourselves using our unique gifts and talents on greater levels for greater purposes. Wow, it is February 2023. Can we just pause and show a bit of gratitude? Thank you, God, for letting us all see this day. I really am grateful. And I'm so thankful for all of you who have been tuning in, listening to the program. And boy, do I have more excitement for you in this season. We are entering season four. Welcome our Envision Together going to our next level of best family. We have a lineup of professionals, entrepreneurs, authors, and people who are just sharing life lessons learned all lined up for you this season. And to get it kicked off, I have a unique episode that's airing first today you are going to hear an interview in which I am the interviewee. I'm in the hot seat. (laughs) And my good friend, Tony Ann Johnson, is interviewing me about the novel I released last May, 2022, Girls in Search of Cover. And this is an opportunity for you to get to know me more as a person and as an author. I'm so excited. I feel the episode went really, really well. Let me know what you think by making comments in Facebook or on my website, Twitter. You know what to do, even on Instagram. Enjoy, everyone. Glad to be back and glad you're listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Envision Together, going to our next level of best podcast. So glad you have tuned in today. Now, this episode is particularly special to me. I have the honor of one of my dearest sister friends, Tony Ann Johnson, who's an author, a film writer, and so much more. She's going to interview me today. I'm really excited to have this conversation with her. I'm delighted. It was actually her idea. I'm so grateful that she thought of this, a way to help me showcase myself, my work. So I'm just going to jump in with her and have fun today. We're going to discuss my novel, Girls in Search of Cover, and whatever else she has to ask me about. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Tony, and and I'm going to be the interviewee. (laughs) Thank you, Pamela. I'm so glad to be here, and I appreciate this opportunity to chat with you. So I'm going to tell your listeners that uh, Pamela and I initially met at Playwrights Horizons in New York City in the 1980s, 
when Pamela was one of the winners of the Young Playwrights Festival. She was flown from California to New York to see her play, Ebony, presented at the theater, and I was hired to perform a small role. We remained in touch, and I was a graduate of NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, and when Pamela returned to New York City to attend the same school, I took it upon myself to be her big sister, probably she would think bossy big sister. We've supported one another's artistic and educational endeavors over 30 years. Um, we've been very good friends, and I am immensely proud of her successes and pleased to have the opportunity to present Pamela as a guest so that you, the listeners, can learn more about her as an artist. Pamela Mashana, PhD, is an accomplished playwright, author, inspirational speaker, and educator. Her play, Ebony, was produced off-Broadway at Playwrights Horizons in New York City. Ebony also received a dramatic reading at the Sydney Opera House in Sydney, Australia. Dr. Mashana has been an educator for over 20 years, serving in multiple roles from teaching to administration. As an educator in residence at the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy for Girls in South Africa, she wrote and directed the play Tando of South Africa. Dr. Mashana's most recent work is a novel entitled Girls in Search of Cover, Part One, which I have had the pleasure to read. Mm -hmm. And our conversation today will focus primarily on this newly released novel. Girls in Search of Cover is part one in a series of novels set against the backdrop of three generations of women scarred by rape. It dramatizes a girl's journey through the belly of the beast and her triumph above the brutal legacy of her matriarchs. Carmia is a troubled young African-American girl whose drug-addicted mother relocates Carmia and her brother to Bovina, Mississippi, a deeply religious backwater town where they all move in with Carmia's grandmother, Ma Evans. Carmia grows up an outsider in Bovina. Mother Johns, a conniving church leader with a dark hatred for Ma Evans, convinces the community that Ma Evans' entire bloodline, including Carmia, is cursed. After a series of tragic deaths, Carmia begins to think so too. As a teenager faced with a life of violence, church hurt, and sexual trauma, will her hope of a better life be enough for her to overcome? Will the voices of her ancestors, a spiritual cloud of witnesses, give her strength enough to escape the abuse her matriarchs suffered? So my first question, in the past, you focused on writing for the stage. So what I'm curious about was, writing prose an easy transition for you? And how did you approach it differently than writing a play if you did? That's a great question. And I would say that in some ways it was easy and in other ways it was quite a challenge because they're two totally different animals. And in my naivete, <laughs> I thought they wouldn't be such different mm -hmm. animals. So it was a rude awakening to find, wow, this is really different from writing a play. My first draft that I wrote early on, actually years ago, it really wasn't a novel at all, but mm -hmm. I, I thought it was at the time. So when mm -hmm. I revisited it years later, as you know, I went to you for help and advice. I knew that it had problems, but I worked on it as much as I could figure out, even using books to help me. I used a book called, I think it was it Writing Novels for Dummies or something like that. 
but it actually helped me get, you know, somewhat of a format down. But there was when you say format, are you talking about structure? Structure, yes. So plays you had learned presumably um, three act structure, correct? Yes, absolutely. So, so when you wrote your novel, did you not think that the novel also needed a three act structure? Did you think you could just kind of wing it? <laughs> yeah. I thought I could wing it because when I first started writing plays, even, I didn't approach it with the pressure of looking at structure. I just Mm -hmm. let the words flow out. Then I went back and looked Mm -hmm. at structure. So my book was the same thing. It's like I gave birth to it, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. then I went back and decided, okay, is it a boy or a girl? (laughs) I think that's normal for a first draft. I think When you do a first draft, you are still figuring out what the book is about. Things emerge within the first draft. So because you were a playwright and plays rely heavily on dialogue, did you find the dialogue parts an easier transition into prose? It was definitely easy because I think I had developed the ability to write natural dialogue. But mm-hmm. do you know that when I wrote the novel, the first draft, I actually didn't use a whole lot of dialogue. I wrote <laughs> prose, yeah. Oh, I, so was that because you thought, oh, now I need to be a writer yeah. of literature so I can't <laughs> rely on just dialogue? Was that why? That was some of the thinking, quite honestly. But again... It was kind of like, just get the story out. So I wasn't focusing on dialogue or prose, but I think somewhere inside, I did feel like it needed to be more prose than dialogue. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I had to work on is putting the dialogue back into the story. (laughs) Show it instead of telling so much. Mm -hmm. One of the coaches you put me in touch with helped me see that. Kate. Okay. Yeah. I think that um, the dialogue is really strong. So I'm curious about what was your initial experience with the reaction to your prose? So that was your first time like really attempting a full prose work. What was the feedback that you got from your prose? You then like went back and had to revise. But I didn't really show that to very many people. I went back Years, I put it down for years. And when I went back to it, I had enough sense to realize that I needed help. But do you know, when I wrote the first draft, I thought, nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) That's also normal, I think, for a first time (laughs) author. A Girls in Search of Cover is a work of fiction. I know that it's fiction. But yet, of course, because I know you, I'm curious as to whether any of the story, like the location the characters or the time period is inspired by anybody in your family or anything in your life that you were exposed to or people that you knew or. Yeah, actually I like to say in some ways, my grandmother co-wrote this book with me. Um, My mother's mother. My mother's mother. Yeah. I've always been an observer, even as a child. So I was always taking in everything Mm -hmm. my family said, did, mentioned, the past. I wasn't a person where it went in one ear and out the other. They would say something, mention something from their past, Mm -hmm. and I would hold on to it and not just reflect on what they said. I would almost daydream about what that world might have been like. Did Um, you ask them about it or did you just listen and not? When I was younger, I just listened. 
And then I did whatever my brain. <laughs> Little did they know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then as I became older, I saw the value in getting more information. Of some of it was just for family history sake, knowing more about our heritage and our background. But some of the characters too are just people I've experienced here or there throughout my life's journey. And I pulled pieces, bits and pieces of different personalities and rolled them into one. Some of it is totally, completely just made up because my imagination just went there. Yeah. Bovina a real place or is that Bovina Bovina is a real place that doesn't exist anymore. It's it's at least not on the map as Bovina. And And that's your real family's birthplace? My grandmother was raised in Bovina, Mississippi, a little area called Oak Ridge in Bovina. And she described it to to me in such detail that like Mm -hmm. she even told me things like they would break off honeysuckle and take it into the house. And that was air freshener. They literally wallpapered walls with newspapers. That stuff that's in the book is not made up. Mm -hmm. Those are great details. (laughs) Yeah. And so my grandmother, even just in the way she would describe clothes or jobs that were available in that area, Did she do the washing? Was that a real reference, like to do the washing of other families? She didn't do the washing, but she was a cook. Okay. Actually, some of her stories remind me of the movie The Help. She had roles like that. That makes me laugh because I met your grandmother and I told you, like, (laughs) I was there one day and she asked me to help peel some potatoes. And then she said, oh, oh, never mind. Baby, just put that down. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> she didn't like that. We use knives and you're a cracker. You were like, I was I like, love you. So peelers. Said, well, we didn't have peelers. And I said, they were only a dollar. And she said, we didn't have a dollar. Okay. But she was like, you are not peeling that potato properly. Please don't just stop. <laughs> and can I tell you what your mistake probably was? You were probably peeling away too much of the flesh with the skin. Probably. Probably. I tried, but I failed. You tried. Anyway, yeah. I, um, I respect her as a cook. And so I understand, like, if you are, you know, if you're good at something, you sit there and watch somebody mess it up. It's just easier for you to just do it yourself. I get, I understand. So I wasn't offended. And my grandmother <laughs> is hilarious. She does have a direct <laughs> style, which I took some of that from her. And she does it in love, but she's just. I know. She was nice about it, but she let me know, girl, you are <laughs> me- messing this up. get out of my kitchen (laughs) that's funny I love when we remember those stories but yeah you know the person who inspired helping me um, with this environment and I'm really proud of the environment because I haven't been there myself for one I would have to go back in time and Mm -hmm. two I haven't actually been back to that area I want to My grandmother helped me create that world. And a lot of people have told me they enjoy being in that world. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's It's not very real, for sure. It's a different kind of environment. And they have their own little town and their own way of doing things. And it's it's very, I'll say, interesting. So I know from our conversations, and um, you mentioned in your author note that sexual abuse is part of your history. It is part of mine as well, as you know. And I wonder how you approached writing about that. Like, was it 
tender, raw um, while you were in the process or did you feel more distant, had enough time passed that, you, that it wasn't as raw? And if the emotions did come up, what was your experience like as you wrote through that? You know, for me, it was actually, uh, it was painful to write about it. And I even had to deal with my own shame around it. Even though you might be the victim of of such a situation, you find a way almost to make yourself guilty, uh, like it's something you did wrong, or you just don't understand why something like that would happen to you, even as a young person. Mm-hmm. I had even feelings of, uh, after that happened to me, feeling like I was less than and not as worthy as other women and somehow dirty and just so part of the reason it took me so long after I wrote the first draft to come back to it is it was still so much of that story I hadn't dealt with for myself to work through it and I was ashamed of it and it was hard for me to look at it I wasn't even fully aware of how hard it was for me to look at it Um, But I needed to. And it was therapeutic when I did finally do that. But one of the big signs is when I was writing the first draft, I was also approached with the possibility of of working for the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy for Girls in South Africa. And because I was writing that story and then they sent me some video footage of the young ladies, that's part of how I knew I should take that position because I was still trying to decide whether or not I was going to accept it. Had some of the girls been abused? Yeah, some of them had been abused. They didn't share that at length in the video footage, but I have definitely experienced poverty at different times in my life too. And just reviewing everything, I felt like, because I was prayerfully looking to God for why me? Because mm-hmm. anybody can go teach drama. Anybody can go teach English. Why should I go is what I was kind of thinking about. And when they sent me that and I was writing this book, it just all touched my heart. And I was, tears were streaming out of my eyes. And I felt like, you know, there may be something, whether it's just an understanding, whether it's whatever it is. I felt I got in touch with the part of myself that maybe could be useful in that situation. So it was a lot of pain and tears while I was writing it. And then even years later, when I picked it back up, mm-hmm. it was a lot of pain, but it was more of a sense making. Mm-hmm. I experienced the tears, but I also was it's almost like getting free to some extent uh, yeah. from the way it had affected me in my life. So I read parts one and two in in an earlier draft, I read part two. For me, at least as I know, I've just reread the book. In part one, there's more sexual abuse referenced in that book with regard to Laura and Carmia in the text than we actually see. There is one scene that it is sexual abuse, but the way that you approach it, you could interpret it differently because Carmia is not, not in control. So she's underage, and so that makes it abuse. It's not like she's forcefully like a raper made to, to do anything. Mm-hmm. Like she's seemingly a willing participant, but that's a whole nother complication because it's a survival tactic. It's not just that she wants that. It's that she's alone in the world, and she's just yeah. trying to find her way to survive. So it is abuse, and that scene is kind of harrowing. It's not the same as what happens to Laura and Carmilla, like 
referenced in the past when that was not consensual at all. So I only reread part one. So in my memory, in part two, there's more abuse actually on the page in that book, from what I recall from reading the the first draft. So that's coming. (laughs) That's like, that's um, forthcoming. So yeah, that's um, coming. And I think one of the things that I'm dealing with in part one, too, is just the psychological aspect of how that abuse plays out in a person that makes you kind of predisposed to being aggressive in that way inappropriately aggressive awakens things that you may not have thought of or an awareness of your sexuality that yeah and it feels like carmia has repressed that because there are when you give us her interiority, what she's thinking, but she doesn't go back in her mind in that moment. She doesn't reference what happened in the past. Mm-hmm. It's like these thoughts are actually coming from her. For me, as a reader, I understood that she was promiscuous precisely because of what had happened to her. And, and that also, like, in this world, she wasn't given a lot of opportunity to see another way because she sees her mother allow herself to be exploited sexually. And she's like hell bent on getting married. Like that's the greatest thing that can happen to her. It's like being belonging to a man is the highest aspiration that she can have. And I, I feel like that comes from what happened to her at a young age Fearing that she's not worthy or she would never obtain that. It mm-hmm. makes it this heightened uh, event or or desire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, listening to you, you're even helping me understand what I've written, even as it relates to me, <laughs> myself. Uh-huh. And what I mean by that is I suppressed that memory, not intentionally, as uh-huh. a coping mechanism as a young person. I suppressed those events, but I was acting it out like Carmia, but not really in touch yeah. with the past. I, I know what you're saying, and I had the same experience with mine. And I remember a conversation that we had, and I asked you about it. And the way you articulated it was, it was like having a dream that you know you had, but you can't grasp all of it. You can't remember all of the details of it. And that is exactly my experience. So it happened to me at age eight and I can only remember it up to a point. And then I checked out. Like I know that I was just like, it is self-preservation. It's just so much to process. I think I psychologically shut down in that moment. And I know something happened because I've never stopped thinking about it. It's haunted me. But I can't access the actual details of what happened past the initial assault. The way I describe it is having a memory that I can't fully remember. And again, it was around that time when I was writing the first draft. I either heard Oprah or Donahue or I don't know what talk show I was Mm -hmm. listening to at the time. But right when I was having that thought that I have a memory that I can't remember, I heard somebody say it on TV exactly Mm -hmm. that same way. I needed to hear that because it yeah. made me feel less crazy because you yeah. you feel like, am I crazy? Am I making this up? No, it's a trauma response, I think. <laughs> it is. Yeah. But I've, I've since learned that. But when I was trying to figure it all out for myself, I wasn't aware of these things. 
So this next part of my question kind of relates to part two. And that is, if you can separate being a survivor from the experience of being a writer of a scene involving sexual abuse or assault, how did it feel, if you can remember, artistically or creatively, when you successfully accomplished executing that scene and it was done and you could look at it and say, okay, yes, this is like, I, I did it. What was the feeling behind, like, were you proud or were you, was it still sad? Like, could, did you, were you able to have the experience of, yeah, like, this is really messed up, but I did this. <laughs> <laughs> like, were you able to feel both of those things? I did feel proud. And it's because I had an own epiphany about my own writing ability. In part two, you get to see what's alluded to in part one. I was actually wowed how I was able to capture in writing, kind of like the flickering of the mind, all the things Mm -hmm. that were happening in that moment, the violation what was happening in the present is kind of like the past and the present emerged together. And her current boyfriend is watching her while she's having this moment. I was proud that <laughs> I was almost like, I don't even know how I wrote that, but mm-hmm. it just, the words came to me in that way. You would literally skip from the present of the boyfriend observing her and then back into her past memory and even her present state. So I did experience a feeling of being proud of how I was able to capture that artistically. Were the feelings simultaneous of like the grief of processing the assault and this at the same time being like, wow, like this came through me and, you know, you surprise yourself artistically, but I'm just wondering like, did you feel those things simultaneously or were you able to just feel like, go ahead, Pamela, <laughs> like you did that. <laughs> I think in that zone, I wasn't feeling the pain Okay. as I was writing it um, like I did in some other moments. Mm-hmm. I think it was almost like, you know, it's inspirational writing. It poured out of me in that way. Yeah. And I just remember feeling astounded. I was wowed by it, actually. When I go back and read it, I feel. But when I was actually writing it, it was like it was just pouring out of me. And I was like, wow, like I didn't even know what I was doing. It was like something had taken over my mind and just oh, that's wrote great. it for me. Yeah, that's, it was inspired. <laughs> yeah. It was actually inspired. And I feel like that is... One of the blessings of the artistic experience is that there is a place, you might call it God, or you may call it just like a place in your higher self that is able to take an experience and make art out of it. And that's what you did in that moment. You made art out of something that you experienced or that you were aware of and you you turned it inside out and delivered it like so that it could be shared with other people. So you did that and then you come back to it just as a reader and you can feel exactly what other readers might be feeling when they're reading it in that moment. And I think that that is one of the greatest like blessings of 
the process of being an artist is like, yes, you can separate it yeah. when you're actually doing the work, but then you could also get to experience it again, you know, and as your readers might experience it. And that's, that's just amazing. That's like, there's nothing else like that. There's no other, you know, experience like that, you know? <laughs> that's why it's such a gift to be a creative. I know we speak the same language, but mm-hmm. to me, it's nothing like it. And I didn't know you were going to ask me this question in this way that would make me ponder it in, in this way. But it brings me to say this, that moment is what I consider my finest writing. That moment in that book. Um, That's in part two. It's in part two. Okay. I think I have some pretty good writing throughout each mm-hmm. novel, but that moment is what I'm most proud of I, I, over my whole writing career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's good. So I have a story in my collection called Lucky that revisits that experience. It took me a while to figure out how to write about it, but I sort of tried to recreate the experience of not quite being in touch. And so the character almost dissociates and she goes somewhere else like in the water away from what's actually happening but we know what's happening so that was my way of of dealing with it but I I really like that part and when I was writing it similar to you I was like oh this is like this is a good choice like this works and then when I read it over I'm moved as if I didn't write it myself you know because it allows you to feel the pain without actually having the what's actually happening right in your face. You know what's happening though, you know? Exactly. So yeah, yes, we do speak the same language. Um, (laughs) Moving on, I wanted to talk about, or just ask you about this. I, you know, I've known you for a long time, Mm -hmm. over 30 years, and the drug use element surprised me because it's not something that I know about you or about your experience. And so I just, I just wondered, you know, is that, element something you were familiar with or was it via a family member or a friend or was it researched observed made up like what was that <laughs> eclectic the, the most i've ever tried is marijuana okay. and i learned early on that i just need to even leave that alone because mm-hmm. i took a few puffs and passed out so i was like oh, okay, <laughs> i know that's one sign that you have no business so even if I wanted to go down that road, my body was like, no. That makes me feel better because I was like, well, if she was into that, like she never told me, where was I? <laughs> but, you know, even with that little bit or even, you know, having wine, like I'm one of these people, if I have wine or whatever, it's like a little bit and I'm like laughing and it doesn't take much for me to just be different, I guess. <laughs> Through those experiences, I can get a an idea of mm-hmm. what being high is, a, a little okay. idea. But certainly I've had friends as well as family that went much deeper. And I have had experiences of seeing how it affected them, caused mm-hmm. them to trip out a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then if I didn't see it firsthand, I've certainly been around those people describing their experience, the good, the bad, the ugly of it all and describing it in detail. And like I told you as a child, 
I'm very observant. I can go to a quiet place where I'm just taking it all in and I could be astounded or whatever. It's just the way I'm wired. It causes you to have all this stuff stored up inside of you that can come out at any point if you got to write a story or whatever. So I had all this stuff inside of me through my observations of people, whether it be friends or family. But I have had one family member tell me some stuff in detail, a female family member who really had experiences that I'm like, literally, I'm listening to her and I'm like, I don't even know who you are. The way you would have felt if if this was coming from me, because you're like, when did that happen? When did that happen? <laughs> know this. Well, I had a time when a family member was sharing things like this with me, and I was literally like, who are you? I'm thinking, you know, our family, we were all raised in a certain way by the same set of uh, adults, whether it's my grandparents, my mother, and all that thinking we have a similar experience. Although I knew she went out there, I didn't know she went that far. And so I do have detailed information about how people would even hide drugs in their private Mm -hmm. parts. And people literally told me stories like that. So I was able to incorporate it. So that's how I know. It was really effective in the book and really heartbreaking how the children had to see and process what their mother was doing and her inability to stop. They had such hope that it could get better mm-hmm. and it doesn't. That was very well done and um, super heartbreaking and felt very real too. So moving on to Mother Johns, the villain mm-hmm. in the book. Um, she is a great character to hate. And I love how you provide the reader with her inner thoughts, her hateful words, and her physicality. Like you can see her and then you even provide us with like the sound that she makes like with her feet and her cane um, (laughs) when she walks. So how did you create her? Um, Was she based on someone? Did you add things to her character over the process of working on the book? You know what's so funny is Mother Johns is probably about three or four different people that I've known in my life rolled into one. Of course, I added things to her. Like, I don't know someone who walks like her and makes that sound. I feel like I know her after (laughs) reading the book. She's a strong presence. Yeah, thank you. You know, she's so fun to write. And when I write her, I have to wonder about myself. (laughs) I'm like, you're nothing like her. (laughs) Somewhere inside those mean things that she says, it's almost like I get to live vicariously through her because I choose not to be mean, but we all have mean things that come to our mind to say. So really, Mother (laughs) Johns, she's saying some of the mean things I would say if I let myself be that person. And then some of it is, you know, it's not me. Uh, the mean things that she's saying. It's just things I've heard or these other personalities that I've encountered. Mm-hmm. So again, I can't I, imagine you ever saying things as mean as that or or just even I having a perspective as mean as that <laughs> lady. She's just so hateful. <laughs> she's horrible, but she's fun. Like she's fun. Like she's entertaining, you know? I think there's different degrees of mean that she shows. So I think mm-hmm. there are some levels of mean that she shows that I'm capable of. And I just don't, don't say that. <laughs> I choose not to be that person. I don't mind being honest. I think we all have the potential 
for terrible things. But that's why I said there's a range. There's some levels of mean that she goes to. No way would that occur to me, be a part of me. But she says mildly mean things that, yeah, can come. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing. She's the diabolical presence. Like she's going to ruin this family. Like her meanness is extreme. Yeah, yeah. but her that. voice, the way you captured her voice is so good. And I think it might be fun, like if you could share even just a small passage, like in, in her voice or a scene that she's in, if you wouldn't mind, sure. read, like read a little bit. Yeah, I'll do a short excerpt that she's in that will help people get an idea of what we're talking about. <laughs> okay. Okay. In part one, this would be page 236. Mother Johns looked Carmia in the eyes. The sins of your mother been passed to you. Now you got to close every door to the devil. She squeezed Carmia's legs closed tightly. Now say it. The front of Carmia's dress became wet as big drops of tears began to roll down her cheeks. I, I close every door to the devil. Mother Farrell's heart was touched. Something didn't seem to feel right. She began to cry too, as she took a seat next to Mother Givens. Mother Johns then directed her scorn to them now. Weak-minded old women with no backbone. Many are called, but few are chosen. She moved closer to Carmia, who had thrown herself onto the floor in tears. She held her stomach. It was cramping from crying. The veins at her temples bulged. Lord, we thank you for the blood of Jesus and we break this curse off of this child, Mother John said. Mother Givens was stirring in her seat, trying to get her mind together. She couldn't take no more. Mother John's, the spirit you operating in ain't right, she said. Mother John's tried to move Mother Givens away from Carmia but the old woman defended the child. Now hold on, Janice, before I give you a piece of my mind. I might not be fully well in my thoughts, but I ain't no fool. And I'll fight you about this child. She poked her chest out and said, oh, help my mind, Jesus. Help my mind, Jesus, Mother Johns mocked. Mother Givens looked like she might be calling on all of her faith and strength when she turned toward Mother John's and spoke with great conviction. Her face was peaceful, but her words were sharp. Now, Mother, don't you go too far. She ain't actually the devil. Y'all the ones acting like devils around here. This child ain't the blame. Mother Givens said, I won't have her kind warning our town, disturbing a new generation. Mother Johns clenched her teeth. I rebuke your wicked, mean spirit, Mother Johns, Mother Given said. Mother Johns was livid. She looked as if she might levitate. I rebuke your ignorant, weak mind. Get thee behind me, Satan. Satan ain't nowhere but in you. And I rebuke you, Mother Given said. Mothers, ain't y'all rebuking the wrong thing? Now focus. We got to finish, Mother Farrell interrupted. That was great. Thank you so much. Mother Givens is a nice, is a good voice too. I enjoy hearing her and Mother (laughs) Farrell. 
That was awesome. I noticed that you use a lot of simile in the writing of this draft of the book that I don't remember from reading the first draft like years and years ago. Hmm. So I just wondered, like, how did that come about? Was it from your reading or was it a skill you learned later? Was it from coaches? Like, where did you pick that up? I'm not really sure. It wasn't something intentional or uh, purposely done. And so I then think, it came naturally. I think so. Yeah. Okay. You're the first person that actually pointed it out to me, but now I'll have more of an eye to look at <laughs> what you're saying. I don't remember it in the early, early draft that I read. And I'm not talking about the draft that I read like two summers ago. I'm talking about the draft I read like a decade ago. So I don't remember it in that draft. I felt like your writing had matured in this draft. What I suspected was it just had come from reading a lot more literature between 10 years ago and, you know, the the most recent draft. Um, So that was what I thought. But I don't know. Perhaps I really wasn't aware of it. I mean, you asking me the question is (laughs) causing me to think about it. Well, I thought you did a great job with that. I thought I liked the specificity of some of the similes that were, that felt like they were coming out of the world itself. And that's something that I teach my students because sometimes like they'll come up with a simile, you know, something is like something else, but the something else is so far removed from the context of the world that they're writing in that they're incongruent. And so what I try to teach them is find something that this is like that feels conceivably like it could exist in this milieu that you're writing in. And I felt like you did that a lot, and I thought it was really well done. No one really emphasized similes necessarily, but... When I was working with the writing coaches that you referred me to, um, again, they did emphasize show, don't tell. So maybe it came out just through my mind wrestling with those ideas since you said that it wasn't in the earlier version. So at least not in my recollection, I could be wrong, but I don't have that draft anymore. It's on an old computer. But yeah, I, I felt like the first draft was like a young writer, you know, a writer new to prose because you were using references that were not as specific and unique. You were using like some things that I had, you know, like phrases that you might call cliche now because they've been used before. Mm -hmm. And I think I gave you the note then, like try not to write anything that we have already read before because somebody else wrote that like come up with your own way and so that might have been something that was in your mind too for this the newer draft yes Um, I do remember you saying that and you know how when you get notes your brain interprets it (laughs) different ways so I'm sure your notes and then some of the notes from other coaches impacted but it's all in how I interpreted what you said. What are the elements of your writing style that feel the strongest or most accomplished at this point in your career? Where are you most comfortable on the page? I would still say that it has to do with dialogue. Okay. Um, I think that is the easiest for me. When I'm writing prose, I do have to still be intentional and be mindful uh, of the things or in areas where I've been coached up. Mm-hmm. I am getting happy though, because I'm seeing that 
some things are beginning to flow, becoming second nature to do, rather than going back and reminding myself. Oh, that's good. Yeah. (laughs) I would say, though, in terms of maybe stylistically, I've learned something about myself that I tend to always look at the past. And I think that's because as a human being, as a person, when I look at people, I always say to myself, who is this person? But when I ask myself that, I'm thinking, what are the set of events and past and circumstances that has brought this person to who I see today? I think I just naturally think that way. So Mm -hmm. it shows up in my writing. So I've learned that I don't really write anything that doesn't somehow visit the past. Mm, I'm I'm the same way. I think Mm -hmm. that's true of my work as well. I see that. And even in going back to Ebony, like I remember distinctly like a scene where Ebony's like looking at a light bulb in the present, but she's thinking about her father in the past. You were 15 or 16 when you wrote that play. Yeah. And you were always doing that, like even going back that far. Um, Even the toast to Leslie, the next play that I wrote after that, I'm not sure if you read that one. I would guess you probably have, but you might not remember. I didn't, but Adrian Kennedy, when I met her and I mentioned you to her, she said, oh, Pamela is the best writer that I have seen at NYU. Wow. (laughs) You told me that. And even you mentioned it again now, I'm still like, wow. (laughs) So I think she was talking about A Toast to Leslie because I think you wrote that in that time. Um, I would actually like to read that now that you mentioned it. I don't think I have. Yeah, I would love to read that. Um, I'll have to pull that up. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything about your writing that you're still working on that you're trying to develop or that you think might evolve in a new book? Now that you've finished book part one, is there anything that you're working on that you're thinking of doing differently or changing, expanding upon in book two? I'm considering having a look at the male characters a little bit more based on feedback that I've received from men. Like people have even said, that the book could very well be called Boys and Girls in Search of Cover. And that was a surprise to me. I don't mean like totally altering this story because I I do think that it rests with the women. Mm -hmm. But if there's more that I can draw out, I've been inspired by some of the reflection that men have told me they've had, even just in trying to be book three. You know, I've thought about the possibility of book three. And then I've also had people tell me of uh, considering a prequel because people want to know what happened in these older ladies' lives during their youth that mm-hmm. brought them to this. Mm-hmm. So those possibilities are there. Oh, yeah. I would love to see what happens between Ma Evans and Janice, who becomes Mother John's. You know, they were good friends and then they become arch enemies. Whatever happened between Ma Evans and Mother John's husband, I want to see that. And yeah, like I think you should do that. That would be fun. But I, I also think you don't necessarily have to do a complete prequel, but I think you could blend that past into a, a later book. Like if you did do a part three, I think you could then, you know, Mother John's and Ma Evans could be the protagonists in another book. It could still start in the present with Carmia, wherever she is, like 
at that point, like where she ends up, I think, at the end of book two. But even picking up, maybe she's still there or she's okay. And Mm -hmm. she is able to be exposed to that past, maybe through a diary or something or on, or mother John's on her deathbed. I'm now writing a book for you. You just showed me ways that I need to sharpen (laughs) my skills to pull that off. I I would, I would definitely want to be some areas of growth to be able to use time in that way, because a flashback in a play is totally different than a, a flashback <laughs> in a in a novel. So that's certainly an area where I would have to sharpen up the skills a bit. I also have interest in doing a almost somewhat, I guess, a autobiographical or memoir type thing about my journey to find my family in, in Africa. And Oh, yes, that's a great that story. story. <laughs> when you told me that story, I cried. So those are areas where, I don't know if the word is tenants or the the structure for that. Yeah. So those are some areas where I'd have to grow as well. But I do feel that by writing this first novel, I feel a little more comfortable dealing with these different genres, so to speak. So what writers have you been reading in the last few years whose work may have influenced you in some way? Anyone? Um, or inspired? There's works that inspire me. I don't know if it's gotten to the point of inspiring my writing, but I admire it. So maybe there's things I'm gleaning subconsciously that <laughs> maybe could influence my writing. I really like Yagazi. It's just the story she's telling I admire. And maybe because part of me wants to do this story about finding my family in Africa, too. So you're talking about homegoing? Yeah, homegoing. Sorry. So I guess it is influencing me as a writer. Mm -hmm. I want to capture being able to tell the story, not just in English, but pulling like some of the Swahili uh, that my family speaks and um, stuff like that into it. So I think she influences me. You influence me. Uh, Watching you and what you've done with your collection of short stories, I even consider the possibility of not all of my stories being these lengthy stories, but short Mm -hmm. stories. Although I don't know if I could pull it off because I think it's coming from your experiences in life. I love the way you share a kind of upper class feel and language. And then you share the kind of lower class or middle class. I like the way you jump around with all that in your short story collection. So you've actually caused me to think of short stories. Okay, that's good. So I know you worked with a couple of coaches. You mentioned Kate, and you also, I think, had some editors. Was there anything you learned from either of them that you found useful that you will continue to implement? Or conversely, was there anything that you heard from coaches or editors that you didn't like and you didn't agree with and don't want to implement? Ooh, now that's a loaded question because I I almost want to say, yeah. That's a learning process. And you learn what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And that's no Mm -hmm. put down or insult to a coach or an editor, Mm -hmm. but you're finding your own voice in your own way. So, Mm -hmm. but obviously I would say the majority of the things I've learned and and feedback, I believe now that they've given me more tools in my toolbox. So Mm -hmm. the majority of it will carry with me. 
even things you've told me, you've given me notes and feedback. And I'm just that kind of person. I'm like, I mean, people say stuff and maybe they weren't even intending to coach me up, but you just did. And I'm like, I'm still in it. It's mine now. It's in the toolbox. (laughs) So that's (laughs) that's my process in life, whether we're talking about writing or anything that I'm doing as an educator or you say something that's of value, it's mine. I do that too. When I teach, I use tidbits from other teachers and I typically just credit them and say like I got this from this person during this lecture I got this from that person during that lecture and I always refer to the artist um, Charles White Mm. who asked those questions in the beginning of his semester and I never met him this I'm like I heard this Mm. on a documentary but he would ask his art students where do you come from Why are you doing the work that you're doing? And how do you know who you are? And when I heard those questions, it was like a light went off in my head. And I was like, these questions are what we're expressing in our work, like all the time, at least for me, I'm always doing that. But I never knew that's what I was doing until I saw those questions. But I always share that with students because it was so helpful to me. So I hope that if they take it forward, they'll credit where it actually came from because it wasn't me. That's what I was going to say. I love that you take the time to credit people. And I do that as much as I remember. If I don't remember exactly who said it, I'll just say I heard this before. Mm-hmm. Well, I can always remember. So that's why, because I, you know, I'm learning these things as an adult, like within the last 10 or 15 years, these are things that I've learned. And so I have no excuse to, it's not like it was too long ago, I can't remember. (laughs) But I did give a lecture at UC Riverside just earlier this week, and I was running out of time. The last part of the lecture that I shared was taken from notes I took from another writing teacher because I was running out of time I didn't give her name but then somebody emailed me and said oh it was so great what you said and I was like well I gotta tell you (laughs) I got that from somebody else but thanks (laughs) and I told her who it was I don't like it when people take my words or ideas as their own and so I don't want to do that to anybody else and I make it a point to try to credit the people that that I got those ideas from And when I say I'm going to steal it, that's what I'm talking about. I'm going to use it again. I'm telling you in that moment, I'm going to use it again. (laughs) And and I'll say, you know, my friend Tony Ann Johnson said blah, blah, blah. But if I forget, and you have a better memory than me. Come on. You remind me of stuff all the time. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, that did happen. (laughs) So I hope that last girl. Do you remember how... I mean, titles and even people's names. I've just never been wired that way the whole time you've known me. I remember one time you looked at me years ago, you were like, you don't know the name of that movie or the whatever. And I'm like, I'm just not like that, Tony. I'm sorry. That sounds incredibly judgmental. (laughs) Really? I I mean, I get it. You didn't make me feel bad. You give me space to be me. And that's all all a person can ask (laughs) for. You didn't judge me. You were like, you don't remember that, but you weren't like the worst for not. I have been that way with people though, and they've called me on it. So I try not to do that anymore. I think I've done it to my partner, Leonard. And he's like, you know, I don't like when you do that. So one time he didn't know who Common was, the singer Common. I was like, you don't know who Common is? And he was like, you know. You know what? Tell Leonard, I'm that kind of person. (laughs) I know who Common is, but there's some people like Common with that status. You could say it. And I'm like, sorry. Same, Same here. 
I just have one more question. Okay. So when can writers expect to see Girls in Search of Cover Part 2 come out? Because that completes the arc of the story. Yes. Yeah, my goal is this coming spring in 2023. I'm hoping to release it around the same time that I release part one, which would be about May, early May. Okay, that's exciting. I look forward to that. And I also anticipate going, you know, years in the future, the two books being published together as one, because I think they belong together. Okay. I know, yes, it's expensive. You're kind of like early career right now. By the time you're like mid to late career, then you start reissuing the books <laughs> and you can just put them all, you know, all together in one place. So that's what I anticipate. I look forward to it. And congratulations. Um, I really enjoyed reading part one and I've enjoyed this conversation. I think we're at about an hour. So maybe we'll close here unless you have more. Yes, thank you. Well, I just want to thank you again for having this great idea and for being such a wonderful friend. So if you say stuff like we said a little while ago, you don't know who that is or whatever, that doesn't affect me because you show me in so many different ways how much you love me and support Mm me. And I wanted to say that on air because you're one of those people who lift me up um, and we all need that in our lives. And hopefully we're doing our part to lift, well, other people up. Um, Yes, you've done that for me too. Yay. (laughs) So that's why it works. And you're such a genuine person and you've never changed. And I just appreciate all of that. And I appreciate that I had this opportunity. It makes it special to me that it was you who interviewed me regarding my book. Um, It was my pleasure. I'm so proud. I'm so, I mean, sometimes I feel like that's offensive when you tell another adult that you're proud of them, but I've known you since you were a child. I mean, I'm proud the way a family member would be proud of their sister. Like, that's how I feel about you. Thank you. The two people who wrote the blurbs for the back of my book are going to interview me. So later on, Dr. Betty is going to interview me. Oh, that's exciting. Special to me. Uh, Mm -hmm. that you two are doing that for my podcast. And it just means a lot. You're always a special person in in my life. I'm glad that I had a chance to interview you about your book. Thank you for that too. Thanks for being such a great friend and for pulling out information and things about me that I otherwise wouldn't have shared with my audience. (laughs) (laughs) Love you, Pamela. Love you too. And with that, That ends this episode of Envision Together, going to our next level of best. See you next time, everyone. Bye, everyone. Well, friends, thanks for joining me for another episode of the Envision Together, going to our next level of best podcast. I hope today's topic inspired you to envision a brighter future getting to your next level of best and to urge others to reach theirs as well. If you are encouraged by today's episode, subscribe and share it with your family and friends. Also, please write a review. It will help me to reach a wider audience with a message of hope and inspiration. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and share your thoughts about today's episode. Until next time, envision the future you want to see.